I am scrambling to get out of town. I'm in Boston this week helping an old buddy from the local TV news uh, shoot a documentary, and I'm privileged to do so. And it's a lot of fun learning from them. His name is uh, Stu Maddox, and his partner in the documentary film world is Joe Applebaum, and I'm privileged to work for them. It's a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and I'm learning a lot. And so I want to get this this podcast out to you to keep 180 continuous weeks with no repeats, no repeat episodes, no vacation, 180 new episodes, which I'm very proud of. And to do it, since I had a cancellation late this week, a woman on the West Coast with a death in the family, who I hope to get back to because she has a fascinating story, I reached back into the archives and found an atypical conversation. Uh, I was in my hometown of Albany, Georgia, and I was out at uh, interviewing a woman at a assisted living, the same assisted living where my parents lived, and she was she contemporary of my parents, and she died not long after this interview. So that was a couple years ago. Well, wait a minute, might have been three years ago when I talked to her. We were COVID safe, so it must have been two years ago. And uh, sat on the front porch, so you'll hear some background noise. But I get, I need to give you some background information. This is more like an oral history because I was interested in her. Um, her name is B. McCormick, and her brother, Bob McCormick, formed uh, a candy company called Bob's Candies. And it's now been sold, defunct. It's not the same at all. You could not have Christmas in my day and age without Bob's Candies because they were the quintessential candy cane, the kind you see that looks like a staff with a hook on the end, you know, rounded at the end, and the red and white striping, the peppermint striping. And the reason I mention all that is because she talks about the origins of the first machines that made that. Not no longer handmade, hand twisted, but manufactured. And the people who were responsible, and the story is buck wild, as my kids say. That it, it is just a wild story involving no less than a, um, a black man, a parish priest, and uh, the Ku Klux Klan, and a murder charge. And, and and if that doesn't get you, <laughs> but you'll hear a lot of uh, fuzziness and a lot of my questions. This is not all polished up, but it is an amazing piece of not just Albany or Georgia history, but of U.S. history and just a heck of a great story. B. McCormick, I miss you. Uh, I just, it was such a privilege talking to you. And the other voice you'll hear, one of them is Nancy Jones, who was on a previous podcast episode good albanian who has returned home would now she's out visiting friends but uh i i really this is so much fun to do this is old home week not to mention great southern storytelling enjoy but we had a telephone call from another industry that said if you'd fire all of those black people, I could replace them with white people tomorrow that would do a better job. Pure segregation, pure racism. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hello there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast in which I practice listening to women, uh, see if I can hear them, which is ironic since when I talk to Ms. B, B. McCormick, uh, I'm interrupting a lot and clarifying, and I'm really talking to her about a bunch of men, but she is the only voice that links you to these stories. And when she passed, if we had not recorded this, these stories that only she saw from only her perspective would have passed too. 
And that's why I do my business, which is called Voice Locket, voicelocket.com. But there is no greater argument for sitting down and talking to our oldest living relatives about the past than this conversation. B. McCormick. When you were born, what was your given name? Mary Beatrice McCormick. And where were you born? I was born in Albany, Georgia, in 1304 Dawson Road. You were born at home? Mm hmm Do you know who helped deliver you? No. And so, you are the what number child of... The third. Of Robert McCormick? The third of, of my father and mother. Are you... Were you the baby? Yes. Oh, indeed I was. And it paid for me. Oh, it paid for me to be the baby. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, I was so spoiled. <laughs> it was a... Uh, it was that typical, you know, they, they, they write books about your position in the family. And what it, that it's true. The first one is smart, behaves, is, takes care of things. The middle one is the compromiser. He always settles arguments and does, takes care of everything. And the third one is rotten, spoiled. <laughs> and that was what I was. Well, you're telling on yourself. You're saying you were rotten spoiled. Well, the, the trouble was I didn't like many foods. And I didn't want to eat those. And uh, as much as Mother would say, now, B, eat your turnips. And I would cry. Dad would meet his either, so we'd leave the table. So <laughs> you and your dad. My dad always took my side, yes. Uh -huh. I looked just like his sister. And his sister had died of tuberculosis. And he was so afraid I was going to die of tuberculosis that he let me eat anything. He just, just eat. Just don't be skinny. <laughs> so, safe to say you were daddy's girl? I was. Uh-huh. And tell me about your father. My father was... Oh, about my father. He was a, a very brilliant man. He was a he was a genius mathematician. He didn't have to have a ma machine on his desk. He could just do most anything in the pricing or the figuring the the, the markup of merchandise. Or so he didn't need an adding machine or a calculator. Well, he had one there because it was just the way you got things done then. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what did your father do for a living? He was the president, founder of Bob's. He Bob's what? Bob's Candies. Bob's Candy and Peanut Company. How did he that, start that? Well, he, he, can't, he moved to Albany and let me back up a little bit. He chose Albany as the place to put his business because uh, he was, he had, he had just been, what do you call it, out of the army from World War Discharged. Discharged, okay. He was discharged from the army and he went to his boss, previous boss, in a company he had worked, Martin Biscuit Company, and uh, he told him he wanted to found his own candy business. And Mr. Martin was a wonderful person. He gave him the money to start, part of the money to start it. He, uh, he, he and gave him instructions. And he, uh, anyway, I won't go on with that, but Mr. Martin was a fine, fine man. So he didn't see that as a betrayal or anything. He wanted mm -hmm. to encourage this man. He did. He loved him. He, he asked him to please stay and run his biscuit company. It was, we had candy and crackers and everything. And uh, Pop said, no, Mr. Martin, you have four sons. And uh, they, they would never be happy with me being the, the manager of the company. And uh, so he didn't, 
accept the offer. And then Pop started looking in the South for where he wanted to establish a business. And he got to uh, Albany, and he got off the plane, off the train, and uh, there was somebody there that met him and sent the word out that somebody was looking to build a place in Albany and get, get the ammunition out. So uh, they, they had the Chamber of Commerce there. John Mock was the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And he took Pop all over the area and he was wined and dined and, and he said that he, that this was where he would find his business that they, they had the pecans around here and they, well, they had a whole reasons, but he decided on Albany, just on that, his impressions. And, uh, and he and mother were, <laughs> they were married in 1920 and he started the business in 1920. And, uh, Which came first, the marriage or the business? I don't know how to answer that question. I don't really know the exact date that either one of them had except mom and dad's anniversary. And I've forgotten that. Yeah. And so where was the first business? Where did they first open shop? They first opened down by the depot. The building is still there on the south side of, of what we call Railroad Street. And uh, it I have a picture of it in that book that shows him and his wonderful uncle, Uncle Lawrence, that he and Pop were just like that. And uh, he lived in Birmingham and Pop had worked in Birmingham before he moved to Albany. Before he moved, <laughs> well, before he went into the military and then he moved to Albany. Uh, no, I don't know what. Forget that part. I haven't got the. the That's okay. You're doing great. I haven't got the the order of it. That's okay. And uh, so he started. He had a secretary, Nippy Mock. Uh, he had a, a a candy maker. A couple of those. He got. I, got, I have to tell you about Percy. Don't let me forget to tell you about Percy. Well, I wanted to ask you about that while you remember it, because the candy maker, if you're in the candy making business, that's pretty important. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just the most important thing there is. So was this Percy fellow a candy maker? Percy Allen. Percy Allen. He lived Allen. in Birmingham, and Pop had worked at the Pat Candy Plant in Birmingham. And uh, he... Uh, Pop talked him into coming to, to run his kitchen. Now, Percy was mean as a snake and smart as could be, and nobody at the plant could stand him. They, they said, Mr. McCormick, he just lets that, I can't say what he said. <laughs> and uh, He had a out. mouth on him. He really did, and Pop took up for him. They, they had him in, they called him one night and said, Mr. McCormick, they got Percy in jail. Pop said, they what? What do they got him in jail for? Well, they say he murdered somebody. Well, Pop was down to the jail, got him out. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. He just knew everybody and took him to the house. And we had an attic on our uh, garage. The garage is a different story, but it had once been the head of the Ku Klux Klan. And they had a big attic that they put all the white robes in, in cabinets up there, that was still there when, our, when we bought the house. But uh, Percy, they told Percy to go up in the attic and they would, they would take care of him. So mother cooked all his meals and took them out to him. And meanwhile, Pop pulled enough ropes to to get him out of jail. Did he kill somebody? It pops <laughs> said, Percy, did you kill him? And he said, 
They said I did, but I didn't. And uh, so, were were they supporting him, or were they hiding him out? <laughs> they were. Mom and Pop were hiding him out. My goodness, the kitchen, the plant wouldn't work if he did. Percy made beautiful candy, just beautiful. He could make cut rock. If you buy a stick of candy and break it, and it has a shamrock in it, that's cut rock. It's very difficult job to do. So he was like an artisan. He was like a craftsman. He was. He was definitely a craftsman. You, the candy was pulled by hand. It was first of all rolled over a hook on the wall and pulled. So it's like taffy see. pulling. It's candy it was. pulling. It but is, it's exactly. it's solid sugar, but it's melted to such a state that you can pull it. You can well, form it. Well, it's a liquid. It. When right. you, when you cook it, it, then you pour it up when the temperature reaches a certain time. You put it on the table and what they call the rock. It was a a, a, a stone to cool the candy. Later on, it became a. a steel table with water, ice water under it but at that time it was the rock and uh, then when it got got viscous enough they would take it over to the wall and throw it over the hook and pull it out and pull it till it got white if you break a stick of candy at that time it had little holes that went all the way through it and you could draw uh, coca-cola through it and we did and uh, so you're sucking sugar water through solid sugar. I don't forget that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a sugar overdose right there. Right, but that sugar's good for you, man. You just don't know the real story. <laughs> the uh, Percy knew how to do everything in the way of candy. We had another one that came over from Birmingham, and his name was Jeannie, Jeannie Garner. And Jeannie Garner was the absolute difference of Percy. Jeannie, there wasn't a sweeter person in the world. When Anna Weezer, Bob, and I were, were small children, Percy would be our babysitter. And he loved us. And many years later, he looked at me and he said, Miss B, I rocked your cradle when you was a little girl. And I could have cried. He was so proud of that. This is Jeannie. Jeannie, Jeannie. did that. Jeannie. Oh, oh yeah. not Percy. Jeannie. Oh, yeah. It, I said it's just the absolute difference. And uh, they were both candy makers. I never heard Jeannie called a genius like uh, Percy was. But uh, Percy on on. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, it would take the, the candy and it pulled just the right diameter and he would start a circle, a coil, and get a, the bottom of a basket. And then he would get hardened sticks and put them around the side. And then he would weave the basket between the sticks on the side. All of it made out of candy. All of it made out of the pink, I mean the, the green, the green candy. So he wove them a hard candy basket. He what? He wove it together. He, he did. He wove the basket around the stakes he put up and they, it went between the stakes and made the basket. Amazing. Just like a straw basket. Wow. And uh, and took that over to Miss Mary Mooney's every every year for several years. And uh, so how did it evolve from this little place down off the railroad tracks to a big manufacturing company? Slowly. Where would he sell this candy? Where would he sell it? Gotten what I was talking about. He moved the candy plant from the the place down by the depot mm -hmm. to a bigger place 
which was a four-story building with an elevator <laughs> and it was uh we were in it I don't know how about how long but uh that was our second building I think it might have been one in between those two I don't think so but it might have been and uh that that was not really very convenient to have four different stories you had to take where was the place that had the um restaurant in it that was on the ground floor oh, of oh, this building and to the north okay. on the ground floor and uh pop rented it to uh a outstanding uh black family here in albany And what's how, his name? How? What's the name? I don't, I don't remember. Oh, come on. The the famous lawyer, the uh the King, the King family. The King, King family. The King's family. Oh yeah, uh -huh. okay. All right. Okay. Pop rented it to the Mrs. King and I don't know, I guess and anyway, you'll have to check the people on in the book. It that would be there. And uh they they had a, a operated a, a restaurant there, and it was successful as a little restaurant is, and uh, they they had great respect for each other, and uh, that don't really I can't tell you what how many years they stayed. I know that. Uh, well, let me One ask time, you. I uh, have to tell you something that, uh, no, I can't tell you something that you can't say. Uh, Ray Mock was one of the Mock families, obviously. And Ray was a brilliant man. And uh, he, uh, he was working for Pop at, the, at this business. And, uh, <laughs> He came in one day, and Percy was drunk, and he fired him. Well, somebody told Pop that Percy had been fired. Pop said, you fired Percy? No way, no way. He got down and got Percy out and got him back on making that candy as fast as he could. And uh, he, uh, uh, he said, he not, nobody's to fire Percy. And uh, Ray said, Mr. McCormick, I don't know what to say or not, Mr. McCormick thinks more of that black Percy maker and that black dog of his than he does of, of anybody else in this place. Oh, so Percy was black. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. You didn't read between the lines. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I, there's a lot there that I didn't know. Oh, so the, the Percy, the, so let me back up then. So there's a black man accused of murder, and you hide him upstairs behind the Klan robes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. oh, Oh my God! So this is this is so there's a there's a black man who's an expert candy maker, and he gets in trouble. And not only does your father get him out of jail, a time and again, he hides him upstairs with the <laughs> oh my God. That's a great story. Oh my God. Mother took all the meals out to him for two weeks. I asked Mother how long, and she said, I don't know, B. I think maybe two weeks, maybe a week. She wasn't sure. But, uh. Oh my word. So he knew that Percy might be mean as a snake, and he might 
alienate everybody. Don't cook that, please. Oh, As a snake, on. just Tercy was me. <laughs> they, in the back kitchen, they were all scared to death of him. But he was so good at what he did that he relied on him to make Bob's candies what it was. And Percy relied on Pop for everything. I go get Mr. Bob, boss man, he'll take care of it. And uh, but it was just Percy and Pop were like that. And uh, it was, <laughs> Percy was, one time he walked in, I can't, I can't remember this story enough to tell it. Percy. I, I'm sorry. I, I That's started. okay. I don't, and I don't. I don't remember how it. So, the, how long did Percy work for Bob's Candies? I don't know, but he he left and went to New York. I think. I I, I remember him. What did he do up New York? I, I'm sure he made candies or anything else he could do. <laughs> But he could sure make candy. Wow. Maybe some candy plant up there well, made him an offer. How old were you when you started working for Bob's Candies? Well, I had gotten out of college. Mm -hmm. uh, I, the year I got out of college, I guess I was 19 or 20. And uh, how... How long was it before they mechanized this process, before they started using machines to make the candy? Well, like I said, stick candy and hard candy was not something that if you could make a machine that made it, you'd make a fortune. If you were that smart, you would make something for Cadillac or uh, uh, that would pay a lot of money. But if you, if you got a cut out of everything that was made out of that machine, you'd never get rich on it. So nobody, nobody came and said, I can invent a machine to do that. It happened one time and didn't work. <laughs> so what you had on, on, on your, you had a saint on your roster and it, Father Gregory love was doing it. it for the love of it. He didn't do love it. Love of it. Yeah, love of it. He didn't do it because uh -huh. that wasn't his, his And he had income. more people working on that machine when it, when he. So, he well, had but let it me back up. Let me back up. I don't even know who this Father Gregory is. Who's Father Gregory? It's not Father Gregory. It's Father Gregory Harding Keller. And he was called Father. Father Harding Keller. Yeah. Relative. His given name was Gregory, uh, Gregory Harding Gregory, Keller, cause, cause and we called him, his family Gregory. called him Harding. Okay. okay, so how did Father Keller, a priest, a Catholic priest, come to work for... His a, mother's brother. It was, it was this, this was his uncle. Father Keller, no, Father Keller was, was his brother-in-law. Oh, was Bob's brother-in-law. Yes. I get you. So he, Father Keller was your uncle. Right. And so he came to work in the family business. No, no. No, he didn't. No, 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 he was a priest. He was an active priest. He built churches and he revised churches and did the same sort of thing he did for Bob's Candy Company, for churches, but he, as he said, they always sent him to the church that needed some fixing up. But how did Father Keller come to design this machine? Well, he, he and Mother were very close. They were the two youngest and the older ones were married and, uh, well, so, so was mother. Uh, and they, he came down to spend his week, month's vacation every summer with us. And he wanted to work on the machinery down there. And he would, before he ever invented a machine to do everything, he invented more little 
gizmos that would divert that and another little thing, a little thing, a little thing. And then he decided he could put the the peanut butter on the on the Ritz, I don't know what kind of crackers they were, uh, on the crackers. And uh, so he had a stream of, of uh, peanut butter coming out in a flat thing. And, and it, the crackers just went under it and this was, was uh, it wasn't too objectionable, objectionable to have the peanut butter oozing out of the uh, cracker sandwich in the salivane that that might be an, an advantage to have that but uh, but it, if you didn't have to put that extra there you could make more money and uh, so he he made a little hair that went boop 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 time just so it hit right where it knocked that stream off just a square that big that dropped down on the cracker. So it portioned it precisely so that every cracker would have the exact same amount of peanut butter. Well, yeah, if the peanut butter sent the, if the peanut machine sit down, sat down an absolutely perfect stream. Well, that's genius. And, and he invented a little wheel that went up here that had a hair blade that went around and around and around and went thug, 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 and it dropped on the cracker. Cutting the peanut butter. And then the next belt had a, a top that it went under it and got a top on that one. And then it went under a roller that sealed it. And then it got wrapped. He did it all. So the machine built. He's a genius. He's definitely a genius. So how did they come? How did Bob's Candy Company come to be in the peanut butter cracker business? Oh, because the depression happened, and and we had salted peanuts and little uh, little tiny peanut. I mean, uh, peppermint drops. They were so cool. They were called Playmates. And uh, they were just a little stick of candy that was cut off to me, a little square like that. But uh, what was I going to tell you about? Oh, about Uncle Harding. After we get through with the machine, remind me to tell you how he invented things for the children. <laughs> uh, he what did you call this priest that was your uncle how did you what did uncle you, harding you called him uncle harding mm -hmm. and everybody else called him father all my friends called him uncle harding what would people who didn't know him call him father keller father keller mm -hmm. so father keller essentially he didn't he didn't get paid he was on vacation and he went to the plant and was just kind of noodling around. He's an inventor. Okay. He, he had the ability to attract friends. There was a, uh, he had some nephews. And uh, he'd ask them to come live at the rectory with him and help him with a project he had. And he had the, the machine down in the basement. And he got some cases of the crackers to run through and then he got them to pick up the crackers and scrape all the peanut butter off and put them through again <laughs> to, to, just, to try to get it right he just had slave labor in those those boys <laughs> three boys and they loved it they loved it. everybody loved it. the people that worked at the plant with him they loved father keller oh they were crazy about him one of them built a whole miniature Keller machine as a tribute to him. And, uh... Wow. He, and uh, that's what they called it? The Keller machine? What? That's what they called it? The Keller machine? Yeah, uh, but the Keller machine eventually became the one that cut and twisted the candy. I get By you. that time, 
the, we were way out of the peanut butter cracker business. Did he pull, did he get a patent on any of these machines? All of them. All of them. Uh -huh. Wow. And, uh, did it ever make much money? I mean, money he was no him? fool. <laughs> yeah. Did it ever make much money for him? Well, it turned out that he, he didn't want any money for it. Uh, and, uh, Pop said, I can't, I can't do that. And so he signed a contract that gave him a certain percentage of the profits from, well, actually this mostly came along with the Keller machine, that the candy cane, because that, that really changed the business and, and it was really making money. And uh, it was, well, shall we skip to that? Or you want to finish on the peanut butter cracker machine? Well, let me ask you, because the, the, what Bob's Candies is known for are the peppermints. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, he started out making a bunch of different kinds of candy. And then because of necessity, they couldn't get sugar during the war. It was hard. And so they shifted, they could get peanuts. So they shifted and they stayed in business in the war. When there were a lot of these candy companies, they didn't have sugar, they went out of business. So how did Bob's stay open during the war when they couldn't have sugar? We had contracts for the, uh, I, I don't think I was working down there then. You, you had a quota. And uh, we built a lot of the money that, that we made was contracts with the government. They, they used candy. They sent the, is that cat all right? That's yeah, okay. he's just he's one. Chilling out. Uh-huh, excuse me. That's okay. He was, uh, I've forgotten what I was gonna say. They had contracts during the oh, war. Yeah, they during, would use the candy, the government would. Yeah, they, they, they built, they gave the recipes to them. They had to make them by that. They had to pack them in waterproof wrapping, a waterproof box, and a waterproof something else. And, uh, and it was sent to the South Pacific and they did not have docks and places to pull a ship in. And so they had to be thrown overboard and they had to float. And uh, that was... Was this candy or peanut butter crackers at this point? Candy. Okay. And it was candy that had ingredients we didn't know what they were. Uh, that was, was it for the GIs? Was it for the... Oh, so it was a little something from home for the GIs. No, it was to keep them from dying of thirst, I guess. I mean, it, it helped to... Well, I know in the... In the other over with the Arabs, the Arabs, right. as our personnel director called them, Arabs. Uh, that's jumping around. Yeah. So um, during the war, this Bob's Candies remained open when some candy companies went under, mm -hmm. and part of that was because you had peanuts in South Georgia so you could still make something to make a little bit of money. And part of it was from these government contracts. Well, mostly it was the government contracts. We... I get it. I'm, I'm not sure my facts well, of that time. Fine. I didn't work at the company. So fast forward to your uncle building these machines for candy canes because the candy canes had been made by hand, right? Mm -hmm. They had pulled them by hand. So he moved on from making these machines for peanut butter crackers. Well, let's, let's go back to the way the stick candy, candy canes are just a stick piece of stick candy. Boop, it's yeah. a candy cane. Uh, they, they come down the belt and they're, they cut. It's 
very hard to explain it. The, they had a long table. I would guess about 20 feet long. Uh, I'm not good at estimating, but it might be in the book. It was pulled out in a long strand and then cut off and pulled out in a long strand and then cut off. Well, when they were making candy canes, that was when they were making the stick. In the same way they pulled it out, but when they pulled it out, they cut it off immediately and twisted it. And it was done by hand. It had a piece of wood that was shaped like this. And the candy came down and they laid it on the side of this and twisted it around there and sent it down the mountain. It was done by hand. And, and so uh, you had to have a human being. At every candy cane. You had to have them curve or bend the top of every candy cane. Mm -hmm. So Father Keller patented these things, these machines. And you were always close to him too, right? Oh, yes. And what was he All like? the family was. He was mother's brother. And temp what was his temperament? What type of person was he? A charmer. He was just a really brilliant man, uh, a very mix, good mixer. He, he, anybody he that met him liked him. Yeah. And uh, we were just proud of him, and, and my father just glowed when he came in the room. Oh, because it was his business that his brother-in-law was doing all of this, and uh, they, they were very close. Um, did Father Keller ever make much money off of this? Uh, he made some. I know he didn't want to make a fortune, but Pop insisted that he wanted to do some charity work and some educational work, and so he accepted some. That uh, Pop just insisted that he had to have some some remuneration for all he had done. And, uh, and so this priest is responsible for mechanizing the candy cane. He was on what's my line. He was? Uh-huh. Did anybody, did anybody? Nobody guessed it. <laughs> mm -hmm. What did he describe as his line? That he was a Catholic priest or that he was an, an inventor for candy no, he, manufacturing? He, was he wearing his collar on what's my line? No. Oh. That's fascinating. I don't know that you can ask him to run it. I don't know what he did. <laughs> oh my word. And when you say he came down, where where did he work? Where was his? Arkansas, the Diocese of Arkansas. I get you. Mm -hmm. And where did he go to school? I went to school in Wheeling, West Virginia. Where did Father Keller go to school? Father Keller go to school. He went to school mostly in Rome. Went uh, to the American College in Rome and graduated, was ordained in Rome. Yeah, and where did they grow up? Where did your in he, Little Rock, Arkansas? Oh, and uh, he went back home to be a priest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, what month of the year would he come down to Albany and tinker? Usually, I think it was in the summer. It was either July or August or crossover or something like that. That's hot. That's a hot it time. It is. It is to come down here. Mm -hmm. And you said he taught physics or studied physics? Well, when he retired, he retired to a Benedictine monastery that had a college attached. And they asked him if he, they saw his degrees and they asked him if he would teach, uh, I don't know what they asked him, but he, he wound up teaching pre freshman physics. And that's when, when I found out was because he said that he had to teach them all that he had learned as a graduate, a, gradu a doctorate in physics. He had to teach him all of that to, for a freshman. Wow. That's what, what physics had done in the 50 years. Yeah. It had gone so far. Yeah. And... Whatever happened to him, when did he die? Probably been a while, right? Yeah, he's been a while. 
I just I just can't tell you. I don't know. I know I went to the funeral, but yeah. I just can't tell you when it was. But he retired as a priest, I guess. Oh yes. Uh huh. Wow. Uh, he was a good priest and a good inventor, and a good family man for his nephews and nieces. Let me tell you the kind of man he had, the kind of mind he had. We would go down to Fernandina Beach, and uh, we would sit on the beach, and Uncle Harding would say, uh, oh, let's just get a little hydro, hydro something as, uh, action here. Let's make that water that comes up dig this hole for us. And he would take some solution of physics that would show hydroelectric, uh, hydropower, hydropower. And then he would say, well, it's raining today. You know what? Look at that rain. Just think the sun just draws it up. It just picks it up. It's so heavy. And it just picks it up. And isn't that remarkable? If a... Uh, he said, if the... Uh, how much... How much weight would it have to have if it rained three inches of rain over... Well, it'd probably be over miles, but we'll just take an acre. If you had three inches of rain over an acre, how much weight would the sun have to lift? Well, he got us doing mathematics. We were all in grammar school for the most part. And uh, he, he had thought up wonderful games to play that taught you what to do. And, uh, but he introduced this concept to a grade school student. Mm -hmm. That's hydraulics. It's hydraulics. He's teaching hydraulics to little kids. And he's teaching the, the, the round trip of the rain and down. And, and he's introducing he the notion of rain, evaporation, that cycle. Mm -hmm. He's also introducing you the idea that rain is water, but it's also a cloud. He, he's introducing you the notion of a liquid and a gas. I don't, I just, it was a long time ago, <laughs> and I just remember the process that he taught us, not taught us, explained to us, and had us just hanging on his every word of a, uh, how, how that we had no idea the sun was picking up tons and tons of water for every little square foot. And, uh, you know, we think of people as either theologians, religious, or scientists, but he was both. He was. He was, uh, he was. More than scientists, he, well, he was, he was a psychologist. He was, he was just an all-around person. And uh, he had more friends than anybody. I mean, uh, in his parishes, the bishop always sent him to the parish that was in bad shape. Oh, golly, the church was needed redoing and and he needed to play a lot in this, and he got that church because he could fix it all himself. <laughs> he didn't have to hire anybody. So he fixed it up in the parish yeah, as well uh, as he fixed this machine. He said, machinery. they always send me where to, they need the church fixed up. So, uh, and he was, he, he, he was vulnerable to some mistakes too. He had a dog, he got a dog. And he put one of those little doors in his living room so he, oh, well, so he wouldn't have to get up in the middle of the night. And one night he heard all this hullabaloo. And he went in, there were six dogs oh, in his gosh. bedroom. He'd invited them all in, and they were having a ball. <laughs> <laughs> the dog party. Ms. B, no distinction. why do they taste different now? 
they taste different because they don't get the same peppermint oil and it's not just for lack of getting it it's because the company that we bought it from went out of business just like our company did except we sold ours and they just collapsed I don't I don't know that anybody's making triple distilled mint that's not on the market but uh, it is it it is so concentrated that if anybody took a bottle of it and spilled it on their arm the nurse sent them immediately to the restroom to wipe it off because it would burn them to wash it off and uh, it was it was marvelous this is get really going out a long way but in the 1920s the mid-twenties pop ran into this man who was going to open a peppermint distillery and pop said well he was going to be buying some peppermint and he made a deal with him right then and there to buy the peppermint from him and they had stayed together all the way through and then we sold and they went broke at the same time, I mean, pretty close to the same time. It's the same people that supplied, um, uh, oh shoot, those type of, of, Beech nut grape gum, peach nut gum. Peach nut gum and Colgate toothpaste, the good tasting ones. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a great business, it really was. I, was, I wanted to throw in one, one other thing that made made the peppermint candy canes what they were. They made them a manufactured product, and that is that B. McCormick designed the boxes that are keyhole the keyhole boxes. They're, they're folding cartons with the, with little slots out that you can put the candy canes in, so that they could be shipped and not broken. And that was an essential part of, of making it so that it could be a, 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 an international business. Because being able to ship the canes was, was essential to... I remember to, that. How did you think of that box? Well, she's giving me all the credit. The first one was that Bob and I took candy canes and decided we were going to find a way to ship them. So the first thing we did was we took a strip of our corrugated board that was the depth of the case plus two inches. And then the top was, what do you call it, marked some way, so that it, it bent over and wedged uh, some empty space in there between the, did you get what I was saying? Yeah, I understand. It, the, it, all the way around the case. But how'd you get to the keyhole? Well, then we went to the uh, to the what would go in it, and we uh, knew that it had to be held where it couldn't touch anything else. And so uh, Bob and I did it together, and actually the people that were going to make it helped us too. They sent us the material and the suggestions and whatnot. But I could see Bob and me on the floor getting those things done and of course in a couple of years time the the thing that went around it was thrown out we didn't need it with that boy's box held it the good box enough was one piece it was just one piece that was folded up and you know that's ingenious <laughs> right. um i want to ask you something else um you talked about percy but my understanding and i didn't know this when I was a little boy here in Albany um, Bob's Candy Company treated black employees equally it's paid them the same thing paid them the same thing for the same job mm -hmm. I get you hang on a sec actually we were the only ones that, that hired black people in supervisory no being that's true too but but that hired them in promotion, production jobs that you got what you paid, uh, got paid what you were worth on. And uh, that was, whenever we announced that we had to have in hiring the people, they had to block the street outside because they were just jammed. People would line up. Yeah, that was the only place they could get paid decent wages. 
Um, I don't say that. I don't know that's true. There were certainly some people that did, but uh, not not any factories. Um, why was that? What did your dad? Because he was kind of early to the party. We're talking about mm -hmm. the fifties and sixties, right? Well, for one thing, he was a he was a religious man. And for another thing, he had worked for a man in Birmingham that had given him a lot of his business what intents and purposes. And uh, it was it was just if he was going to work somebody, it had been white people that did that job. So if if they'd already done the job at that, why wouldn't they pay these the same thing that they did? It was just no question, I guess. I, I wasn't in on how they did those things. But uh, my sister was the, was the financial person, and my brother was the production person. I was the packaging person. It was a family business. Uh-huh. But there were plenty of places in Albany, Georgia, who did not pay black people the same for the same job. It was worse than that. I, I can't mention names, but we had a telephone call from another industry that said if you'd fire all of those black people, I could replace them with white people tomorrow that would do a better job. Nobody did as good a job as our black people. Nobody. They were so anxious to keep that job. They were the sole support of the family. They would lay off. They would, they would come to work. They were so reliable. They're so good. Why would another industry want you to lay off all the black people and replace them with white people? Pure segregation, pure racism. They wanted white people to have those jobs. Well, you're awful good to do this. Bless you. I don't want to keep you. It's after dinner time. Thank you. Uh, be kind to me. Oh, of course. <laughs>
uh, in her words, the podcast and now voicelocket.com for three, four, five more years of doing this. 180 episodes in and strong. Thanks to you all. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.